Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello and welcome to the Fun Kids Bookworms podcast. My name is Bex, I love books, and it's a busy old show today. We'll be chatting to the Beano gang about the mini, the minx, brand new boomick. We'll be speaking to Sophie Anderson about the snow girl. We've got Owen Colfer popping by with Juniper's Christmas and everything under the sun from Molly Oldfield. So, I guess we really need to crack straight onto it, shall we? Uh, first up, this is the gang from the Beano, Craig Graham, Mike Sterling and Laura Graham all about their brand new Mini the Minx Mission of Maximum Mischief book. We need to talk about the new Boomix book we've got from the Beano. Um, First of all, Mike, can you tell me what what a Boomix is? What what are we doing here? Oh, well, a Boomix is the perfect cross between a book and a comic. It's got more pictures than an average book and more words, more funny words than an average comic. So we think it's like the best possible thing that anyone could ever hope to read. That's a pretty big thing to say. The best possible thing anyone can hope to read immediately we're in. A, a boomick's a new thing. It's like a, it's like an invention, you know, and it was the idea was to get, you know, the the talent of the, the you know, the artists like like Laura and just, you know, be able to talk about the characters in a bigger way than we're able to in the comic. Because the comic's got like the edited highlights of the characters in Beano Town's lives, but the boomics give us a little bit more space just to tell a little bit more jokes and, and, and some background about them, who their pals are, what their families are like and things like that. You know, stuff that we knew that Beano readers wanted to know. I'm going to come back to this because a few things I found out in the book did intrigue me. Um, but Craig, can you tell us which character this book is focused on? Well, this is a very exciting uh, boomic, uh, Bex, because... For the first time, and she would say not before time as well, uh, this boomer is, is heavily focused on Minnie, who readers will know from the Beano comic that they get every week. We don't see Minnie as a second-tier character or anything like that. She is just as popular as Dennis and Nasha and Banana Man and everybody. And, uh, you know, she really deserves to have her own book and her own books. And she's been demanding... Uh, and a very loud voice at the back of our heads that, you know, it's time for her to step forward and and take the acclaim of the nation. After all, it is uh, a very special birthday for her as well this year. Yeah, so uh, Minnie, she doesn't look it, doesn't show her age, but she is it 70th anniversary, is that right? 70th anniversary, yeah. Every year she celebrates her 10th birthday. She's a perennial 10-year-old, but but this is the 7th uh you know, the, 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 the seventh decade she's been in Beano, which is amazing, you know. So it's it just to, to think of a, a character that, you know, kids, readers today, you know, their, their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their, sometimes their great-great-grandparents have all, you know, loved as well. It, 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 there's there's very few characters that are so shareable, but also still so modern. Well, I've got to say, as you guys know, I'm a big Beano fan and Minnie was one of my favourites uh, when I was growing up. And uh, Laura, we've got to come to you now because you're drawing Minnie. How does it feel to be in charge of her? Oh, it's a big responsibility. Uh, she's she's not an easy uh, girl to be in charge of. <laughs> and I, <laughs> any Anyone will tell you that. But 
yeah, it's uh, it's exciting to be drawing one of the the Beano's real legacy characters. So you know, you you have to uh, you have to treat her with the appropriate amount of uh, of respect. I love the idea of respecting Minnie because I don't think she'd give much back to you, Laura. I think that's accurate. Now, as we mentioned before, um, I think Mike mentioned, Mike mentioned um, you find out stuff about characters that you maybe wouldn't get space and time to know about in the comics. And I found out, and I don't know, I should have known this already. I didn't realise Minnie's full name is Hermione and I didn't know she had so many brothers. Uh, Mike, did, did you, did, was this in common folklore about Minnie or is this something that you've put in the book? Do you know what? It, it, it was absolutely in common folklore that she had the brothers, but this is the, the interesting process, Sabino, because... One of her brothers we defined as having a very specific job that works for the plot. But the other four brothers, we, we, we hadn't, we, you know, we had the joke that, that, that all their names start with M as well. And, and we, we didn't really have uh, any kind of career path for them. And Laura, uh, she sent me an email one night and she says, Mike, Mike, just to help me picture the, the, the brothers in the head, I've given them careers. And so suddenly they have a backstory. And so what we do is we save all that information up. And, and this is how Beano gets created. It's, a, it's, you know, it's a pure team coming together. We, we save that information up. So in future, in future books, you you know you'll see the you know the 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 other brothers' careers coming to the fore as well. And and I, I just think that's the thing when 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 we need something, Beano is a slice of life that's larger than life. So, you know, there's it's very relatable for kids. So they'll see things, but you're right. It, 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 in the books, we've got hundreds of pages to, to, to enjoy writing into it and illustrating into it. And it just gives us that time to fill these spaces in. And like I said, Laura deserves all the credit for, for, for some of the jokes you're going to read about our brothers in future. I'm very excited about that because I love the family portrait, Laura. You've got all of the, the family together for Minnie, just just also just kind of like just having a lovely time, basically, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, going back to what Mike was saying, uh, I, I knew that she had the older brothers, but um, they'd never been pictured before. Um and again, that's that's quite a big responsibility to to say, right, I'm I'm going to be the one that defines what all of Minnie's five brothers look like. And I really needed to to have a a sense of them as characters to actually be able to to think of what they might look like and to to give the readers some sense of what they might do and what they might be like. I mean, it's never mentioned in the book, as Mike says, it might come up in future. But I thought, well. You know, Minnie looks up to them, so they've got to do something cool. So, like, one of them is, like, a musician, like, in a, a band, and he, he kind of looks like the kind of guy who might be in a band, and that sort of thing. So I wanted to make them look like the readers might might think, oh, they look like interesting guys. I wonder if we'll find out more about them, rather than just kind of five little clones of Minnie's dad. It makes sense where Minnie's come from that she would look up to them. You're right. <laughs> and Craig, tell us, we've got some other characters referenced in here from the Beano as well. Like the numbskulls are mentioned. You've got Calamity James. Is it kind of important to you to, to put other characters in there too? Yeah, well, Minnie lives in Beano Town, Bex, and, and all the characters that uh, readers can find in Beano Comic also live there. So that's the world that she lives in. And we know that Beano readers love to, to recognise other characters from the from the world that they enjoy. And it's it's great fun as as a writer, and I'm sure uh, for Laura as an artist as well. It's great fun to 
to have those little worlds collide in a little bit more. So, you know, Calamity James has his own strap and he's drawn by somebody other than Laura uh, in the comic. But, you know, there's no reason why their paths can't cross in Beano Town and in a story. And it's very satisfying to see the way that those characters speak to one another. It's, uh, it's much more like real life, I think. Uh, and, and we know that readers do do love that little flash of recognition and it's a little bit like marvel you know when iron man meets the hulk and stuff like that uh, i think is. i think they it feels do it exciting when you well see them all cross over yeah yeah it is, it is like a crossover and that's that's quite a change from um from uh, the beano in past decades isn't it i think because I'm, I'm pretty sure when i was reading it as a child uh, each character strip they all kind of felt like their own little worlds yeah whereas in the last several years it's Beano Town's become much more of a sort of a place like Springfield in The Simpsons where there's lots of different characters and you're all you're learning about each of their individual adventures, but it makes perfect sense when their lives intersect as well. That that's absolutely right, Laura. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, which was before you were, every kid in the comic went to a different school and things like that, and you know, there was no real connection other than the comic that they appeared in the comic and and it was you know it was fine and and it is what those little stories that deal with one character that that's what Bino is very very good at but it didn't make sense to us that Dennis wouldn't know who Minnie was when they wear the same jersey almost you know and and little details like that and why why wouldn't you want to go to a school that Dennis goes to and Minnie goes to and, you know, the Bar Street kids are in a different class and things like that. So we wanted to create a world where the readers could pop in, you know, every time they open a Beano, they are in a world. They're not experiencing maybe 10 or 15 different worlds. That's one world and, and everything makes sense in its own terms. Again, as a, as a writer and, and as a, an artist, that's really fun to find the details in the background that, you know, you can have. So... You know, if you have a banana skin lying round the corner, uh, readers now know that, you know, Banana Man lives in Dino Town as well. Maybe Banana Man's just been there and, and gone off on a, a kind of superhero mission. And it it just fires the imagination. It's incredible. It's very empowering to sort of have your imagination fueled by all these little things. Because obviously you guys have written it and you've, you've drawn it together. Is there one bit in the book to look out for? One bit that maybe people won't notice if they're on their first read, but maybe a little bit of an illustration or a little joke that you love the most? Is there one bit we should look out for, guys? Um, Laura, you can go first. I do like the main prank with the beans. It gets uh, its own double-page spread of her parents getting absolutely drenched in baked beans, but that wouldn't really qualify as something that the readers wouldn't spot the first time round because it's very, very obvious. I'm just looking at that picture now, actually. Um, it is very good. Uh, Mike, how about you? Yeah, for me, right, it's a kind of... One of the cool things about the, the illustrations is when, when we brief them to Laura, you know, there's a story behind them and, and Laura adds a little extra something special and then we, we often add speech balloons at the at the last minute and Minnie's you know we've been talking about brothers already but Minnie's older brother Mark he, he's in charge of marketing at the Beano Town Baked Bean Factory and we, we, we make a thing that he's, he's famous because he designed the packaging that sells the beans so well and the speech balloon that he says and I, I was really I thought this was a great joke but I, I, I sometimes worry maybe really just won't get it so this is you've given us a great opportunity here and it's the, and he says 
He proudly says, Beanotown Beans, there are guaranteed 239 beans in every can of Beanotown's magic baked beans because just one more would make it too farty. It's subtle and they might not get it the first time, but I hope the readers, and I know the Beano readers have got a cheeky sense of humour, so uh, I, I, th- I think they'll, they'll, they'll get that soon enough. And uh, just, I just, I just really like that. It's the, it's the, because it's the spirit of Beano and the spirit of the Beano illustrations and the Beano writing is always to get one extra joke in. But the other thing I love, and I think people should look out for, is Laura's take on Nasha in the book because Laura, you know, N- 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 Nasha's obviously usually. And Dennis Strips, and, and Laura's drawn Nasher many times before, but there's a picture later on in the book where uh, Nasher's helping out with uh, <laughs> set up uh, the prank, and he's, he, he's just he's doing like about four things at the one time, and it's one of those things that when I see an artist do it, I always think, how did they manage that? Because I cannot conceive of the way that they've done it. That that, that you know, they, they've, it's it's like the pictures moving in front of your eyes. So I, I love that, and I, I would urge any reader that, that wants to be an artist to kind of look at stuff like that because pictures that have characters moving are the most difficult to draw well, I always think. Yeah, the Nasha whirlwind going on here. I do appreciate that. I've got, again, I've got that right in front of me as we speak. Craig, how about you? Is there any bit that you want to look out for in the book? There's a page of dad jokes in there, which, uh, <laughs> which uh, I, I can't take any credit for. Mike's the dad joke expert. Uh, Oh, you say that to tease me. <laughs> I hate to lie, but <laughs> I'm choosing my words really carefully. They're very punny, funny and very they and are. very dad. Guys, thank you so much for telling us all about Minnie's Mission of Maximum Mischief. It's out right now to celebrate her 70th anniversary, which is incredible. Um, and um, long may she reign, and hopefully there'll be more beans and more pranks all over the place. <laughs> oh, there certainly will be. There certainly will be. And do you know, Bex, there's one more thing. Every time we do one of these books, we always include something called the Beano Boombox. And it's free to use, and it's on Beano.com. And what it lets you do is every picture that Laura's drawn, there's a sound effect that's been created for it. You know, it's a very kind of fun kid sort of vibe that they'll get. Again, makes me want to reread it another time. Um, brilliant. Well, uh, Mike, Craig and Laura, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Oh, I look forward to that. Thanks, Bex. Yeah, thank you, Bex. Cheers, Bex. I love that Beano. Oh my goodness. Big thank you to the gang there. Uh, next up, we have got a big new Christmas adventure for you from Sophie Anderson. Uh, she was the indie book award winning author who wrote The House with Chicken Legs, and now she's got a brand new one called The Snow Girl. I am joined right now by the author Sophie Anderson, who I haven't seen for a long time. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, The Snow Girl, which I believe was inspired by um, a Russian kind of old folklore story. Is that correct? It's a fairly famous um, old Russian fairy story called The Snow Maiden. And it has been um, turned into, it's been in lots of fairy tale books. It was also turned into an opera and um, a play and a ballet. And there's lots of other books sort of inspired by it. So it's um, a story that's been going around for a very long time. And this is my sort of uh, middle grade version of it, yes. Why were you drawn to it then? Well, I've always loved it. My grandmother told me um, the story the first time I heard it. I watched a movie of it, an old Russian movie, a very long time ago that stayed in my mind. And I just really love the imagery, you know, like like winter is such a magical time. And um, I really wanted to write a lovely, wintry, magical story. I was talking to my agent and my editor about this and... Um, 
the first story we we're talking about winter stories in particular and that was the first one that came into my head I said oh there's this beautiful fairy story set in winter where somebody makes um, a snow girl and it comes to life you know and um, I just love that magical imagery and I thought it would be really lovely to do a version for this age because I didn't actually remember ever reading a version for this age I had quite recently read there's an adult version called um, The Snow Child um, by Ewan Ivy which is a lovely adult book and um, I've read lots of uh, uh, versions for younger stories but I thought it'd be nice to turn it into a sort of you know like a novel for my readers you know the ones who are kind of you know eight plus so and what a lovely job you do of it as well so tell us uh where you meet tasha in the book where do we find her what's what's happened to her recently she's moved she she used to live she lived all her life near the seaside in this warm place in the far south and um something quite scary happened to her before the book starts which means that she's quite a nervous and shy character but she's quite excited because at the start of the book she's just moved to the far north to live with her grandpa who she loves very much she's moved there with her parents they've all moved there to help grandpa run the farm because he's getting on a bit and he's got a, a nasty winter cough and um but he um, has a goat farm and Tasha loves animals she loves this rural place there's lots of wildlife all around the farmhouse and she's very excited about this new life but she is feeling quite lonely and quite isolated partly because she's this thing happened to her in the past which means she's quite shy reaching out and she's in this quite rural place where there are other children but they're quite far away and she's a little bit shy to reach out to them so much as she's enjoying her new life she is feeling quite lonely at the start of the book hence the uh, the wish upon the snow girl that she builds yeah, so she builds this beautiful snow girl who kind of brings her out of her shell a little bit. She, she does indeed. It's exactly what she needs. She builds this snow girl and Grandpa says she should make a wish. So she wishes the snow girl comes to life so that she feels less alone. And um, of course, her wish comes true with this winter magic and the snow girl um, takes her on lots of adventures and slowly she builds her confidence and, and they become friends. And um, and yes, it's kind of exactly what Tasha needs to kind of come out of her shell and feel a little bit more confident. But of course... Um, as winter goes on and on, it goes on a bit longer than it should. Tasha starts to think this something's not quite right and that spring should really come to the valley. But of course, she worries what will happen to her friend when spring comes. It's interesting. I, I read um, at the back of the book, you said the idea that, you know, it made you think the idea that spring is coming. You, it means you have to like live as much as you possibly can while you're around because obviously for the snow girl, it's, it's you know, spring is on the way. It's not, not ideal. I wanted to stay true to the original fairy story in that respect. And um, obviously there's a few different interpretations of it, but I always felt that the story was very much about living life to the full. You know, the snow girl in all the versions that I've read of her is this lovely, cheerful character who seeks out love and happiness, even though she doesn't exist for very long. And so I always felt there was this message, you know, of, um, of living life to the full, exactly like you said. Yes, you know, because yeah, a short, full life is preferable to a long, empty one. And that's the message that Tasha needs because um, she isn't living life to the full because she's feeling a bit too scared to get out there and do things as, as we all feel sometimes. Which is where it's lovely that she meets some new friends as well. And she kind of um, she gets more confident to, to branch out a little bit. Exactly. That is, I mean, and that is ultimately what she needs. She needs to reach out to make more friends. And so the snow girl helps her with that, you know, and towards the end of the book, there's some lovely scenes where um, Tasha realises she needs help. And she finally reaches out to the other children in the valley and really starts to build some friendships with them as well. What's it like writing about winter and snow? Did you Were you writing this in wintertime or did you write it in summertime? <laughs> no, I wrote it in summer. <laughs> It always seems to be the way. I think when, when we first talked about the book, it was um, winter. So I was quite excited about it. And I remember there being snow. But I was working on something else then. I was finishing off the edits for the previous book. And so 
so by the time I really got into writing it, it was summer. <laughs> and, um, I think this has happened quite a lot. Whatever season my books are set in, um, I seem to have the idea in the right season. But by the time I'm writing it, it's a completely different season. But, um, but there's lots of ways of getting around that because ultimately a lot of my writing happens in this small room that you can see anyway. So you can make this room feel like winter. I surrounded myself with lots of wintry books and I bought a candle that um, told me that it would smell of snow. I'm not really sure it did, but, you know, I kind of set this scene and I imagined I was in winter and even though it was... Um, gorgeously hot outside. Mm-hmm. What was your favourite wintry thing to write about in the book? <laughs> the scene of just building the snow girl was lovely, but they have so many lovely adventures and some of them were inspired by things my children have done, like building little snow houses and um, watching um, shooting stars under the snow and um, kind of um, ice skating and yes, just all the lovely wintry things that you do. It's, um, it's, it's, it's lovely to write about those, you know, things that you can only do in winter, really. It's like a magical world, isn't it, on its own, basically, with this, the idea of snow and icicles and 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 also just magic in general that your book has as well. It's incredible. It is magic, isn't it? It changes the landscape so utterly and completely and it can happen in one night and it really does make you you know, feel if the whole world can change this much in one night, then anything can be possible. And I think that's why perhaps there's so many lovely magical books sensed, like set in winter because, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the world just looks completely new and different, does it? And everything's sparkling and, and wonderful. So, yes, it's a lovely time to write about. And tell me, do you have any more um, fairy tales and folklore stories that you've got your eye on for another book? Because I know that you do love your your fairy tales. I do, yes. There's so many, they're lined up. You know, I actually, I finished this one and I started plotting another book based on the Firebird, although I've shelved that because I'm working on something else now. But um, I I have um, a bottom drawer here with just loads of ideas that basically they all come from um, Russian or Slavic or Polish um, fairy stories. Um, There's so many of them that... um, I just find them deeply inspiring and they're all quite short stories. So they lend themselves so well to letting your imagination expand them. You know, I always say to children, if they want to write, but they're not sure what to write, to go and dig out some old stories and just borrow a character that inspires them or a theme or an idea because they're perfect places to, you know, to feel inspiration and to blow them up into bigger stories. That's a really good idea. I've never thought of that before. But yeah, kind of borrowing and and workshopping and reusing and then kind of coming up with something new is quite exciting, actually. Exactly. And le- lots of writers do it. Lots of filmmakers do it. Disney do it, you know, and the whole, uh, I, I was um, mentioned that there's a Sleeping Beauty spin-off. Is it, is it Maleficent where they just take that character and give her a whole story? And um, I used to do this with workshops when House Chicken Legs came out because um, cause essentially I took Baba Yaga, who was quite an evil character generally in folklore, and turned her into something good. And I always think a good idea is to choose a fairy tale villain and to imagine a backstory for them, make them a more rounded character. Why are they evil now? Did someone wrong them in the past? And there's lots of um, books and movies that explore that idea that take someone who on the surface is this two-dimensional villain and turn them into a character that is very relatable and understandable. That's really good advice, actually. That's excellent advice for anybody listening who wants to be a writer. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And we should say uh, The Snow Girl is out right now and it's beautiful. Uh, You've got some lovely pictures in there. Every page is a delight. And um, everybody can grab it at their local bookshops, I imagine. I'm so glad you mentioned the illustrations. They're by Melissa Castrolon, um, who illustrated the cover of The House of Chicken Legs. So I'm working with her again. But this is my first book that has all the illustrations are in two colours, which is absolutely gorgeous. They're in this lovely blue palette, which is very wintry. And it really adds to the reading experience, I think. She's um, Melissa and Osborne just really excelled, making the book very wintry and very special. Um, yes, and uh, I think it's gorgeous. It really is, honestly. Um, well, Sophie, thank you so much for telling us all about The Snow Girl. And um, hopefully we'll see you for more uh, fairy tales and stories very soon. 
That would be lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Now, recently, I spoke to Owen Colfer. I've never spoken to Owen before. I had no idea what to expect. And he was so funny, so amazing. Uh, you may know him because he wrote the incredible Artemis Fowl series. He's got a brand new Christmas book out right now called Juniper's Christmas. Let's find out a little bit more. I am joined right now by the author Owen Colfer. Hey, how are you going? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's really nice to talk to you. Um about books and whatever and you know the history of the world we should cover everything don't we shouldn't limit ourselves whatever whatever needs talking about we should talk about that because you've got a brand new christmas book out uh juniper's christmas initially i thought i will try and do to christmas what i did to adventure stories with artemis Powell in like scrooge it up and you know make everyone horrible and i just couldn't you know uh, i just kept remembering my kids and their faces at christmas and my wife loves christmas like she's a real christmas girl and uh, I'm kind of the, the Scrooge of the family. I don't want to put up decorations and they just leave needles. Like, let's get a fake tree. I don't want those needles all over my carpet and the resin getting into the, into you know, in between the floorboards is ridiculous and everybody just overpowers me and puts up the tree. So, but as I wrote this book, a strange thing happened in that I started to enjoy the characters and uh, the idea of Santa Claus and what he represents. And maybe now more, this this year just seems the world is crazier than it has ever been in my lifetime. And uh, so I just started to really enjoy it. And, and when I sent it in, then it, it uh, very quickly, I, people said, right, this has to go out this year and we're going to put it out at Christmas. And it's, it's taken me a while to suppress my curmudgeonly instincts. Um, but I'm, I'm actually, you should come. I'm just, I'm doing nice readings with jokes, you know, giving out to anybody. Nobody goes away depressed. So it's it's a whole. It's, I think it's changed me as a person. I think I'm going to try some hopeful books from now on. See what see what happens. The spirit of Christmas has got inside you. I love that you were like saying you were almost disappointed there that you weren't uh, that you were hopeful. You seem to be. Oh, I'm hopeful now. I suppose. Yeah, I'm. I'm over, yeah, I'm annoyed. That's <laughs> pigeonholed me there, but incorrectly, I'm annoyed that someone has made me feel optimistic because you know it's almost as bad as having pride you know optimism comes before a bigger fall than pride so i'm expecting something horrible to happen well i I hope not at least before christmas i I hope not at christmas time that'd be a bit rubbish but you've got um maybe the reason you're so optimistic is you've got a lovely character juniper who is just like an absolute joy uh, to read about, right? She, she's kind of inspired by some of the amazing uh, girls of literature, you know, from Pippi Longstockings to Anna Green Gables and, and that kind of amazing positive character that I imagine, even though I have no confirmation, I imagine Kate Bush is also like that, that just by having them waltz into your life or pirouette in Kate's case, you just feel everything is better you know everything is good just from meeting this person and uh, and i want the juniper to be like that where just when she comes into your, the room you know whatever, whatever this girl wants to do i want to help her do that or achieve that i definitely don't want to stand in the way and she manages to actually change some of the characters in the book they completely changed their ways one in particular the, the, the parky he's a real nasty piece of work he, he's almost like a scooby-doo bad <laughs> and then he he becomes scooby-doo 
good. Uh, so, and that's because Juniper is so nice and uh, positive, and she always wants to do the right thing. And I think that having that kind of person in your life, uh, in your job, it's such it's such an addition to your own the quality of your own life just to have a good person around because you you feel guilty if you do something that's a little bit off or wrong and in a way the Artemis books were like that because you had the fairy Holly and she was like that character him that he didn't want to do bad things anymore because he might disappoint her and I think Juniper is like that people would hopefully uh, would just want to get in whatever her agenda is they want to get in on that and be with her and pull it in the same direction yeah you're right she kind of brings everybody up doesn't she she's you know She's obviously gone through some tough times because we meet her and her dad has passed away and, and then her mum goes missing and it's all all a bit crazy. But you do want to help her and you're really rooting for her as a character. We take this amazing girl, and she's but she's been through a lot and she's going through a lot. And just as she's coming out of it, something else happens. And you're like, oh, what, what else does this girl have to do? And then she just says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find Santa Claus. That's what I'm going to do. And he's going to help me fix my problems. And you're thinking, that is the most, yes, why not? Let's go, let's do this. Because we should mention, we meet a rather disillusioned Santa Claus, which now I'm thinking, having talked to you now about how you feel about Christmas, did did you kind of influence Santa? Did Santa influence you? I, I did look at Santa and I kind of applied the same thing to him. Okay, Santa's happy, he's got his reindeer, he's, everything's going great, he's drinking his cocoa. Well, what if he just doesn't have any of that? And what if, it, you know, he's fed up? And, and imagine if you were Santa Claus, and this was coming back. This, this was in the post. Here's here's 45 tons of presents that we sent to the UK that were dumped because the kids didn't want that particular phone or they didn't want that particular game. How would you feel about that? And then you lose your wife. Uh, you might feel, well, you know what? I've given enough to this job. I am out of here. And so that's the Santa we meet. So I, I do think you're getting a bit of an eyeful into my own personality. Genuinely, because I've read the book and I, I genuinely really loved it. And the first chapter, it's a real hook. Like it really, straight away, I was like, I'm in and I need to know more. Is it hard to, to get that straight away in a book? It is hard. The first, For me, the first few pages always gets the most rewriting because uh, I talked to an editor, one of my first editors, when I went to work for, um, I went to work for Puffin and back in 1990, possibly so and I just was interested in how it works you know commissioning and editing and I was saying you know you know when you send in the first 50 pages because that's the standard you know send in 50 pages like how how much like how do you how soon do you know and she says well we know negatively within a paragraph like we know after a paragraph like, there's no way there's no way but if you get through that paragraph, you go okay well I'll read the rest of the page uh, and if I get through that page you know, so every paragraph, every line has to drag a commissioning editor to the next line because they have so much to read. They have so many piles to read that they're, I won't say they're actively looking for a reason not to publish, but they're certainly, they're, a writer has to dig themselves out of a hole they're already in just by sending something in, which is a horrible way to look at it, but it is true. So they like they might have fifty manuscripts a week to read, so they cannot physically read all of those. So there has to be a way of discounting stuff. For a start, doing a Christmas book is is a is a real decision. I think when you have a, like a twenty year career in kids books, and do you like do you want to go this deep into genre at, uh, that you're doing a book that's only going to have a life of six weeks in the first year, and then if maybe never come out again so maybe you're limiting you're right you're spending six eight months writing a book that's only going to be sold for six weeks 
uh, it has to, you have, that's a real decision. So as well, if I'm going to write this, I want to hook people in um, with the premise of the book. So the first few pages about Santa's backstory is really important. And I wanted to sell that as something we already know. And I'm just paraphrasing. Everyone already knows this story, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. So it's like what happened in the last chapter? What, you know, what happened last week? Let's just do a little quick recap and then go on. And then in presenting it like that, it kind of grounds it in realism and people are straight into the book. And uh, I try and do that with every book, but it is kind of difficult to do that. It, it, well, it really does hook you in immediately. And also you've got some good villains as well. You've got some good characters in there. You must have enjoyed getting some like meaty characters in the book as well. Trude Madden is, uh, she's a great villain. I really, uh, she's like Captain Hook meets Del Boy in Ireland. So it's a, it's a great character to mess around with. And, and she, I, what I love is their family. We all have these amazing family traditions, but her family tradition is that the children are named after various crimes. So her name is Trude, which is short for Intrude, and her son's name is Lar, which is short for Larceny. <laughs> so I, I just love that kind of wordplay. Uh, and she, she's great fun to write. And the, the only point in my books when I would laugh at my own jokes is when I have when they're nasty characters and they're just, uh, they're unashamed, unabashed. They don't think they're the heroes. They know they're the bad guys. And uh yeah, I, I really love Trude. And I, I, if I ever kind of have a universe situation where it's a, a universe in my books, I definitely would consider bringing her back at some point into another story. All right, we'll have to look out for her. We'll have to see if we can find Trude in any other of your books. <laughs> She'll just pop up in random ways. Um, now, I do have a thing with every author where I do a little quick fire round of questions, if that's okay. Um, just to get a feel, a feel for you as an author, basically. I mean, I feel like I know you pretty well already, but just to double check, you know. So first up is books or Kindles? I prefer books, but books. I do have, I always have a couple of books on my phone, on the Kindle, uh, just in case I'm stuck without a physical book. Just so I think, you can't know, be away from one for too like long. like a backup. I like that. Yeah, no, I, I, it's just a comfort thing. I mean, I couldn't get on a plane or I couldn't get into, uh, you know, on a boat or a car without a book. I mean, I don't obviously read while I'm driving. That's bad. But I would have a book on my person or in my bag. <laughs> I like that idea. Um, heroes or villains? Uh, I do like a good villain. I just I just watched rewatched uh, Die Hard uh, the other day. And uh, it's still a great movie. But, you know, Alan Rickman, the king of uh, bad guys. Uh, it, it's, I think the trick with villains is they have to have a kind of a self sense of humor. Uh, about the, the the ludicrous situation they're in and that they're perpetrating. So yeah, I would say villains from um, Hans Gruber to uh, with his beautiful uh, English German accents, which is perfectly pitched. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have dinner with uh, one time with uh, Alan and a producer, and he's just so he's such a gracious man, and he's I suppose he's a little intimidating. Um, because you think you, you see him as a character sometimes. But I mentioned my mum was an amateur actor, there had been, and he was so, he, first of all, he had just done a reading from a play. He insisted, he gave me his own manuscript and signed it to my mum. And then he spent the next 15 or 20 minutes talking about how amateur the acting grounds is like such a fantastic breeding place for actors and he's known so many amazing actors who turn professional having come out of the amateur world because sometimes professionals are not very impressed by amateurs but he was actually uh, the opposite so film adaptation or tv adaptation i think uh, in general tv seems to give more room to breathe for an adaptation and uh, sometimes books need need that little bit of 
and leave that little bit of space. Now, this is going to be a tricky one. Artemis or Juniper? Juniper is named in the book after uh, Juniper's uh, Virginia, I think, which is the, the English version of the Christmas tree. So she's a Christmas baby named sure. after the Christmas tree. So I'm deep. You probably didn't realize that. No, you've like, done the research. I, I, have level- I have levels. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give you that one. Um, writing or reading? I would prefer reading. I mean, every, the, the mark of a really good book for me, if I'm reading a really good book, it makes me stop reading and go and do some writing because I think, oh my God, I have to try harder. This is amazing. So I just throw it aside in disgust and go and try and write something good. Uh, so yeah, but I do really, really, if, if, if it's about happiness and satisfaction, I would always read and read something great like you can go back to something like uh, christmas carol dickens and just see how every line and every sentence is just amazing and every character is is in the local you know in the universal psyche that's how good it is and uh yeah so there's nothing like reading a book written by a, a you know someone who's really good at their craft paddington bear or winnie the pooh i have read paddington bear and i have read winnie the pooh and i really love uh, both of them and I think ideally those two bears would be sent to the same preschool uh, and it, you know it would be they would be mates <laughs> and we should have an adventure of Paddington and Winnie and that would be, if they were kidnapped by Captain Hook oh it, this writes itself why, why? I should write this I was going to say should, write it uh, why am I telling yeah. why am I telling you this this is a great idea but uh, no I, I, if I had to pick one I would say Winnie the Pooh and and re- the reason I suppose for that is because uh, my, my boy Sean who is 20 now but growing up, he did love a bit of Winnie the Pooh. So um, that was like the age we were in. So because he loved, he watched that. It was on the Disney Channel at the time. We also watched this. And and this made me go away and have a look at the books again and realize, oh, my goodness, they are amazing. Do you write nine to five or do you write when you fancy? I do the old, uh, I have a mixture of my styles, a mixture of J.K. Rowling and also a Roald Dahl. In that, in the mornings, I go to a cafe. And then the afternoons I go to shed in the garden. So I cover both. I reckon that's how to do it. You know, just do what the greats do. And finally, the last one is the most important one. So I will be judging you on this answer. Salt and vinegar or cheese and onion? Now, you see, that's not as straightforward. I prefer the taste of cheese and onion, but then I have to talk to people. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't get... You can't get I'd, I don't like the taste of salt and vinegar as much, but they are passable in company. It's okay to do, do that. And uh, we have a particularly pungent brand of cheese and onion uh, in Ireland called Tato, Tato. Which, which everybody loves. So what you have to do in a situation where there is cheese and onion, you have to take that bowl. And only if everybody in the house and possibly the neighbours takes one of those, can you take one? Because you know then you're all infected. That's the best answer we've had. That's the, because that's the reason. Well, Owen, thank you so much for telling us all about Jennifer's Christmas and uh, hopefully I'll, I'll see you very soon for another book. Absolutely. It was lovely. It was, lo- it was lovely. And I'm glad I passed the cheese and onion salt and vinegar you test. You did, just And I about. get to come back next year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, congratulations. <laughs> Big thank you to Owen Colfer and to round up today's episode of the Fun Kids Bookworms podcast, it's Molly Oldfield. She's just joined the Fun Kids Podcast Network and she's telling us all about her brand new book and podcast, Everything Under the Sun. So I'm here right now with Molly Oldfield. Hey, Molly, how are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. How are you? 
Yeah, I'm grand. Thank you so much. Uh, you have joined the Fun Kids podcast family. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So can you tell us about Everything Under the Sun? Because it's such an exciting and rather intriguing podcast. Yeah, so Everything Under the Sun, um, I, each week I answer three questions sent in to me by curious children all over the world. And what they do is they borrow a grown-up's phone and they record themselves saying their name, their age, a bit about themselves and where they live. And then they ask me their question. And then their grown-ups email the audio or video file to me uh, at molly at everythingunderthesun.co.uk and then I pick three every week and answer two myself and every week bring in a really cool expert to take on one of the questions. So um, we've answered so many questions like including uh, why do snakes shed their skin? What where does fire come from? Can blue whales talk to killer whales? What noise do giraffes make? Why are trees green? Why do butterflies have patterns on their wings? why don't gorillas walk like humans like literally anything and everything we we take it on everything under the sun so yeah it's a really good fun thing for kids to explore their curiosity and get their questions answered i love the idea that listeners and uh podcasters well they'll basically become presenters alongside you if they're asking the questions right if their voices are in the podcast yeah that's what i love about it hearing all of their voices and then getting to put their voices on the podcast so they can just show that uh, play it to their friends and like hear their own little voices on the podcast it's really really nice i think I would have liked that as a kid so I'm hoping that they do too absolutely and and of course Molly the thing is you can't ask all these questions and give me examples of questions without not giving me some answers I need some answers to to, uh, to tell my friends please well I've got plenty of answers and yeah with the podcast we've also made a really beautiful book so we've made everything under the sun a curious question for every day of the year and there's a question and answer for every day of the year and it's illustrated by 12 different artists so it's really colorful and really beautiful so um yeah why don't you tell me your birthday and I'll tell you the question and answer for your birthday great idea okay so August the 16th please Okay, let me turn to the book. August the 16th. Your question is, why do cats purr? Any ideas? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I assume for attention, but I probably feel like there's a better answer than that. <laughs> well, the book says cats often purr when they're calm, like when they're snuggled up on your lap. But cats can also purr when they're nervous, scared or stressed out. High-pitched purrs, which are more like a meow, can mean a cat wants food or attention. These are called solicitation purrs because cats make them when they want something. In the wild, cats often purr when they groom each other. Cat experts think purring has a healing effect on humans and is really good for a cat's body as well as us. And the vibrations help a cat's bones to grow and its muscles to repair. I love this. All right. Okay, I want another one. So give me your birthday date, Molly. Oh, my birthday is November the 30th. And my question is, why do people make art? Um, and it's answered by um, Oliver Jeffers, who made like all those amazing picture books. Mm. Um, and he says, we make art because we can. Every other species is absorbed with survival, but humans have evolved to have extra time and brain capacity after our needs are fulfilled. With this, we're able to start to ask big questions about why we're alive and how we might spend our lives. We think and feel, and we need to express these things to others to help us understand that we belong to something greater than ourselves, a sense of community. To that end, art is one of the most important things we do. We often learn how to read a picture before we learn how to read words. We often feel things we can't put into words when looking at art. Making art can also just be the simple pleasure of appreciating and creating beauty in our lives. Oh, wise words. I love, I mean, I love him so much. And this brings me on to my next question, which is, yeah, who who do you have on the podcast and who do you have in the book? Because you've got some lovely guests. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we have, okay, at the back of the book, we have the all the kids who've asked questions and their ages, so their names and their ages. Then we've got all the experts. So we've had, well, we've had all the curators at the Natural History Museum, the dinosaur curator, the fish curator. We've had Professor Jim Al-Khalili, who's on the radio a lot talking about physics and Big, he does all the like big cosmic questions. We've had Rob Biddulph, who uh, is a great kids book author. We've had Richard Branson answering one about why we go to space. We've had Grayson Perry doing one about play. Philippa Perry about dreams. Sophie Dahl's on next week um, talking about magic. And she's also been on answering why a tortoise is so slow. Neil Gaiman, who wrote Coraline and Stardust. And he's answered, he does all the Santa ones. So every Christmas he comes on and does the Santa ones. Yeah, so many people. I love it so much. It's, and how did you get into all of this? How did you? Were you a naturally curious person and then you thought, you know what, I'm going to make a podcast out of everything? Yeah, so, well, actually, I worked on the TV show QI for 12 years. So I was like, they call us the elves, the people who wrote the show. So I came up with all the questions for the show for Stephen Fry and wrote all of the sort of notes that he used to present the show. And then I had kids and I thought, I I don't want to work at QI anymore. Um, I want to be at home doing something. And I thought, well, what about all these questions? Maybe I could just, I tried it out. What happened was I'd written a book about museums and in it was the Blue Well and the Natural History Museum. And a little friend went to see it and I asked her mom if she had any questions. And she sent me a voice note recording of her saying, can Blue Wells talk to killer whales? And I thought, what a good question. And I asked the curators at the Natural History Museum to do a voice note answering it. And that was like the kind of beginning of the podcast. And I thought it sounded really fun. So I, my friend like stitched three questions together and we put it out as a tryout. And then Stephen Fry retweeted it and shared it. And it just sort of jumped up the charts um, and got nominated for a British Podcast Award uh, like after the first month or so. And then, yeah, so I just kept doing it. <laughs> it was just an experiment, really. But yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Have you ever found a question that you haven't got the answer to or have you got an e- answer for everything? Well, I've still got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions left to answer. And I, I like pick the ones I can answer or find an expert for, but I've got a lot of work to do. So before we let you go, Molly, um, give us one more fact from the book. One, what's your favourite one in the book that you didn't know before? I really like the one about what noise giraffes make because I kind of assume they don't make any noise, but actually they hum, but only at night. And we humans can't hear them, but they hear each other talking to each other in this humming giraffe language. Oh my goodness. Okay, so next time I hear a hum, it could be a giraffe nearby? Well, you won't be able to hear it because it's so low frequency that giraffes can only hear the humming, but you can't. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) you have a secret giraffe, Molly. Maybe we don't know. Maybe you have special giraffe ears and can hear them. Yeah, we never know. (laughs) Fingers crossed. All right. Well, um, thank you so much for telling us all about everything under the sun. And of course, like you said, the podcast is uh, right now at Fun Kids and the book is out as well in paperback. And everybody can grab one wherever it is they get their books from. Yay! Thank you so much, Molly, for telling us all about it. Thanks so much. What a busy old show it's been today. Oh my goodness. Uh, thank you so much to the Beano gang, to Sophie Anderson, to Owen Colfer, and to Molly Oldfield. And hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, tell all of your friends, like, subscribe, follow, uh, let everybody in your life know how awesome books are. And I will see you very soon for more Bookworms. Bye. Hold up. 
Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!